Hello. My name is Dr. Roger Henderson, and I'm a GP in Dumfries and Galloway, and I also co-host the GP Notebook study groups. Welcome to the GP Notebook podcast, where we discuss bite-sized topics aimed at all those working in primary care. Now, you can find us on all major podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Please follow us to receive notifications about new episodes, and if you like what you hear, please consider leaving a review to help other listeners find us. It really does help. You can also follow us on Twitter, at GP Notebook, for more information about new podcast episodes and study groups. And you can also follow me there too, at Roger the Doctor. Finally, you can visit gpnotebookpodcast.com for podcast episode show notes and gpnotebookeducation.com to find out more about upcoming study group meetings. In this episode, we'll be discussing the management of hay fever in primary care. Now, the goal of managing hay fever is to give effective symptom relief for our patients by using allergen avoidance measures, pharmacotherapy, occasionally immunotherapy, or a combination of these. Now, we should always ask our patients about the range of their symptoms, such as eye, nose, and palate symptoms, so that any treatment can target the affected areas. If you have a patient who, for example, only has nasal symptoms, they may not need an oral antihistamine that treats all of their potential symptoms. And most patients with allergic rhinitis symptoms can be treated in primary care using a stepwise approach according to the severity of their symptoms. In fact, the British Society for Allergy and Immunology advises referring the patient to an allergy clinic only once all available therapeutic options have been exhausted. Unfortunately, for most of our patients, we do not need to refer them to specialist allergy clinics. So, let's start with allergen avoidance. This is one of the guiding principles of treatment, although these can occasionally sometimes be tricky to follow by our patients. If we look specifically at pollen allergies, then the tips I normally recommend to my patients include keeping the windows of their homes and cars closed, if at all possible, obviously, and to minimise the time spent outdoors during times of a very high pollen count when practical. Most of our patients can see the current daily pollen count now on the local weather forecasts. If they avoid activities known to cause exposure to pollen, and the classic example here would be mowing grass, then obviously that's to their benefit. And if they've been outside or done outdoor activities where exposure to pollen is high, they should shower when they come in from outside. And this is to remove any pollen which lodges in either their hair or on their skin. If they're in the car, they should use recirculated air when the pollen levels are high. And if their car has access to a pollen filter, they should make sure that this is always up to date. To protect their eyes from airborne pollen, they should wear sunglasses, particularly the wraparound type, which are especially effective. 
And if they wash their bedding or clothing, they should always try and dry these inside or in a tumble dryer to prevent them being exposed to pollen outside. Now, although it's not strictly hay fever, I do think it's worth mentioning animal allergies too here, I think. If there are proven al animal allergies, then the animal involved in triggering that allergic response shouldn't be allowed in the house, if at all possible, or restricted to the kitchen area only. Now, as someone with three dogs, I know how hard that can be. But unfortunately, the sad truth is that if you're allergic to cats or dogs, then you've got very few effective ways to reduce your exposure to these pet allergens short of getting rid of your beloved animal. What many people often don't realize is that pet allergen levels only slowly decline when a pet is removed from the home environment. So it can easily take up to three to six months for all traces of pet dander to be removed. So a rapid improvement in symptoms should not be expected once Kitty or Bonzo is no longer in the house. Now, for those of you who may have inherited or bought hypoallergenic uh, animals, I'm afraid I've got some bad news for you. That appears now to be a myth that has been debunked. So, going back to hay fever, remember too that nasal and eye saline irrigation is often extremely good at decreasing hay fever symptoms. It also improves the efficacy of nasal treatments, although some patients do find these uncomfortable or difficult to use, so not everyone is able to use them. If allergen avoidance measures and nasal and saline irrigation treatments haven't helped, then let's turn to medication. Now, the first-line management is with either an intranasal corticosteroid or a non-sedating oral antihistamine. Ideally, we should always try to start with an intranasal corticosteroid, as oral antihistamines are often less effective than these, which comes as a surprise to many people. But in my experience, many patients do prefer to go straight to oral treatment. Oral antihistamines do have a rapid onset of action, so they are suitable for PRN usage, especially for symptoms of rhinorrhea, sneezing, and itching, which we so commonly see, but they do only have a relatively modest effect on nasal congestion. When prescribing an antihistamine, always try to use a non-sedating one. And also remember that paradoxical hyperactivity with sedating antihistamines has been reported, particularly in children. This is sometimes perhaps something we do forget. Also remember that second-generation antihistamines, and I'm talking about ones such as loratadine and cetirizine here, are preferred for breastfeeding mothers. Now, this is because of case reports and studies that have shown drowsiness and irritability in breastfed infants when first-generation antihistamines had been taken by the mother. Another first-line option when symptoms are intermittent and don't require daily medication are intranasal antihistamines. And these seem more effective than some oral types, especially azelastin, in my experience. They do appear to be effective at treating rhinorrhea and congestion, but not at improving other symptoms that aren't linked to the nose. 
Intranasal antihistamines do have a fast onset of action after their initial dosing, usually 15 to 30 minutes and no later than 3 hours, and are also effective over a 12-hour period, although they can sometimes cause sedation in particularly sensitive patients. Once you've started treatment, reassess your patient after their trial of monotherapy, either with an intranasal corticosteroid or oral antihistamine, and ideally try to do this within a week if at all possible. If they are asymptomatic, carry on unchanged. If they're still symptomatic, try an alternative first-line monotherapy, and also check they're using the correct technique for any sprays or drops they may be using and remind them again about saline irrigation as a useful add-on treatment. Now, at this stage, you can also combine first-line treatments, such as adding an intranasal corticosteroid or antihistamine to an oral antihistamine, or even using a combination of intranasal antihistamine and intranasal corticosteroid. If, despite this, particular symptoms persist, you can tailor treatment to your patient at this stage. So, for example, if they have a persistent watery rhinorrhea, for example, and you've excluded other possible causes for the symptom, then add in something like a nasal anticholinergic ipratropium, which can be very helpful in this situation. Although do remember to use this with caution in patients at risk of closed ankle glaucoma. If the persisting symptom is sneezing or nasal itching, then add in an antihistamine spray, such as azelastin. And do remember, too, that a combination spray of fluticasone and azelastin is now available if you want to prescribe this. And I have found this a very helpful treatment option at times. Some of you may also have used the oral antileukotriene montelukast at this stage of treatment in your patients who have associated asthma symptoms linked to their hay fever. Now, I've done this myself and found it very helpful, especially when used with an oral antihistamine. But actually, in fact, studies have suggested that the extent of their benefit isn't clear. And so they're not recommended for routine prescribing in the primary care treatment of hay fever. Although if you do feel comfortable with, your, with their use, then you are able to. Now, eye symptoms can be particularly miserable for our hay fever sufferers, particularly for teenagers taking exams. And so if intranasal steroids and antihistamine tablets don't work, then consider using topical antihistamine drops, such as azelastine or olopatadine. Another option here can be mast cell stabilizers, like chromoglycate, for example. But do remember that these require regular treatment for several weeks before the full benefit may be obtained. Now, the use of oral steroids can be contentious, but these can be helpful when used in very short courses, by which I mean no longer than 10 days at the most, ideally five, whilst trying preventative longer-term treatments, especially if needed to cover important life events. I tend to use a dose of 20 to 40 milligrams a day in adults and 10 milligrams a day in children. Also, do remember that intramuscular steroids such as Kenalog are no longer recommended in the treatment of hay fever because their risk-benefit profile is poor compared with other treatments available. Our patients may go to private clinics to obtain these, but we should not be using these in our NHS primary care surgeries. 
Now, you may wonder when evaluation by an allergy specialist is advisable. And the two main times to think about this is when there's an incomplete response to the trial of therapy of environmental and pharmacological interventions, and there's a persistent and significant impact on the patient's quality of life, by which I mean this interferes with family life, hobbies, sleep, activities of daily living, work, and emotional well-being, and or an inability to adequately control associated conditions such as asthma or associated sinus disease. Now, one of the things that a specialist may consider is whether immunotherapy may be an appropriate treatment. Now, immunotherapy is essentially a desensitization treatment where a patient is exposed to steadily increasing amounts of allergen with the aim of inducing an immunological tolerance. And this is because allergen immunotherapy has been shown to be very effective at improving hay fever symptoms, with the two types being available being subcutaneous and sublingual. Now, subcutaneous immunotherapy, known as SCIT or SCIT, can actually alter the natural history of allergic disease, including causing long-term remission from symptoms after the treatment has been stopped. There's also encouraging evidence that in children aged between 6 and 14 who have SCIT treatment, progression of their allergic rhinitis to asthma can be reduced if it's given for a minimum of three years. The other type of immunotherapy, the sublingual type, known as SLIT, is effective in treating hay fever in adults and children, and it may also have the same disease-modifying potential. It's considered generally to be as, as effective and better tolerated than SCIT because any potential adverse effects are usually limited to mucosal symptoms. And it's certainly easier to use because the patient self-administers SLIT, unlike SCIT, which is administered in a clinical setting. So, that's an overview of how we should be looking to treat our patients with hay fever. And I do hope you found the podcast helpful. Please have a look at the show notes that accompany this episode at gpnotebookpodcast.com. And we'd be very grateful if you consider following the podcast and leaving us a review on your favourite podcast platform. Feel free to get in touch via social media at GP Notebook or email support at gpnotebook.com if you have any questions, comments or ideas for future podcasts. You can also visit us at gpnotebookeducation.com to register for our virtual GP Notebook study groups and download free resources and shortcuts to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. Thank you for listening, and until the next time, goodbye.